This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Emily Snow, Alessandra DeMonda, Basil Arden, Ariana Ross, Brooke Ferris, and Kathy L. Thank you all so sincerely for donating and being a part of making this show. For anyone who doesn't know, these are all brand new supporters of Sleepy on patreon.com slash sleepy radio. So if the Sleepy podcast has also helped you uh, wake up more refreshed and have a good night's sleep, then consider going to patreon.com slash sleepy radio and donating even a dollar a month. It goes a really long way. And no matter how much you donate, I'll read your name in the opening credits of the next show. That's patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Uh, 
I think I'm probably like most people in that I really love the new year because it just feels like a fresh start. It feels like you can do things that you might have been putting off or something you've always wanted to do but needed kind of the urgency to do it. One other great thing specifically for me and you listening to this is that every year new books and literature enters the public domain when their copyright expires and I'm allowed to read them on the show. Well, for years now, ever since I started the show, a lot of you wanted to hear um, some stories by Virginia Woolf. And it's really exciting that now, in 2021, uh, her famous novel, Mrs. Dalloway, has now entered the public domain, and I can read it for you here tonight. So tonight, Mrs. Dalloway, by the one and only Virginia Woolf. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes and let me read to you. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself, for Lucy had her work cut out for her. The doors would be taken off their hinges. Rumpelmeyer's men were coming. And then, thought Clarissa Dalloway, what a morning, fresh as if issued to children on a beach. What a lark, what a plunge. For so it had always seemed to her when, with a little squeak of the hinges, when she could hear now, she had burst open the French windows and plunged at Borton into the open air. How fresh, how calm. Stiller than this, of course, the air was in the early morning, like the flap of a wave, the kiss of a wave, chill and sharp, and yet, for a girl of eighteen as then she was, solemn, feeling as she did, standing there at the open window, that something awful was about to happen. Looking at the flowers, at the trees, with the smoke winding off them and the rooks rising, falling, standing and looking until Peter Walsh said, musing among the vegetables, was that it? I prefer men to cauliflowers. Was that it? He must have said it at breakfast one morning when she had gone out onto the terrace, Peter Walsh. He would be back from India one of these days, June or July, she forgot which, for his letters were awfully dull. It was his sayings one remembered, his eyes, his pocket knife, his smile, his grumpiness. And when millions of things had utterly vanished, how strange it was. 
a few sayings like this about cabbages. She stiffened a little on the curb, waiting for Dirtnall's van to pass. A charming woman, Scrope Purvis thought her, knowing her as one does know people who live next door to one in Westminster, a touch of the bird about her, of the jay, blue-green light, vivacious, though she was over fifty and grown very white since her illness. There she perched, never seeing him, waiting to cross, very upright. For having lived in Westminster, how many years now? Over twenty. One feels in the midst of the traffic or waking at night. Clarissa was positive, a particular hush or solemnity, an indescribable pause. A suspense. But that might be her heart affected, they said, by influenza before Big Ben strikes. There, out it boomed. First a warning, musical. Then the hour, irrevocable. The leaden circles dissolved in the air. Such fools we are, she thought crossing Victoria Street, for heaven only knows why one loves it so, how one sees it so, making it up, building it round one, tumbling it, creating it every moment afresh. But the various frumps, the most dejected of miseries, sitting on doorsteps, drink their downfall, do the same, can't be dealt with. She felt positive by acts of parliament for that very reason. They loved life. In people's eyes, in the swing, tramp and trudge, in the bellow and the uproar, the carriages, motor cars, omnibuses, vans, sandwich men shuffling and swinging, brass bands, barrel organs, and the triumph and the jingle and the strange high singing of some aeroplane overhead was what she loved. Life. London. This moment of June. For it was the middle of June. The war was over, except for someone like Mrs. Foxcroft at the embassy last night eating her heart out because that nice boy was killed and now the old manor house must go to a cousin or Lady Bexborough who opened a bazaar they said with a telegram in her hand John her favorite killed but it was over thank heaven over it was June the king and queen were at the palace and everywhere though it was still so early there was a beating a stirring of galloping ponies, tapping of cricket bats. Lords, Aska, Ranala, and all the rest of it, wrapped in the soft mesh of the gray-blue morning air. Which, as the day wore on, would unwind them, 
and set down in their lawns and pitches the bouncing ponies whose forefeet just struck the ground and up they sprung. The whirling young men and laughing girls in their transparent muslins who even now, after dancing all night, were taking their absurd woolly dogs for a run. And even now, at this hour, discreet old dowagers were shooting out in their motor cars on errands of mystery. And the shopkeepers were fidgeting in their windows with their paste and diamonds, their lovely old sea-green brooches in 18th-century settings to tempt Americans. But one must economize, not buy things rashly for Elizabeth. And she, too, loving it as she did, with an absurd and faithful passion being part of it, since her people were courtiers once in the time of the Georges. She, too, was going that very night to kindle and illuminate, to give her party. But how strange, on entering the park, the silence, the mist, the hum, the slow-swimming happy ducks, the pouched birds waddling, and who should be coming along with his back against the government buildings, most appropriately carrying a dispatch box stamped with the royal arms? Who but Hugh Whitbread, her old friend Hugh, the admirable Hugh? Good morning to you, Clarissa, said Hugh, rather extravagantly, for they had known each other as children. Where are you off to? I love walking in London, said Mrs. Dalloway. Really, it's better than walking in the country. They had just come up, unfortunately, to see doctors. Other people came to see pictures, go to the opera, take their daughters out. The Whitbreads came to see doctors. Times without number, Clarissa had visited Evelyn Whitbread in a nursing home. Was Evelyn ill again? Evelyn was a good deal out of sorts, said Hugh, intimating by a kind of pout or swell of his very well-covered, manly, extremely handsome, perfectly upholstered body. He was almost too well-dressed always, but presumably had to be with his little job at the court, that his wife had some internal ailment, nothing serious, which, as an old friend, Clarissa Dalloway would quite understand without requiring him to specify. Ah, yes, she did, of course. What a nuisance. And felt very sisterly and oddly conscious at the same time of her hat. Not the right hat. For the early morning, was that it? For Hugh had always made her feel, as he bustled on, raising his hat rather extravagantly and assuring her that she might be a girl of eighteen. And of course, he was coming to her party tonight. Evelyn absolutely insisted, only a little late, he might be after the party at the palace to which he had to take one of Jim's boys. She always felt a little skimpy besides Hugh, 
schoolgirlish, but attached to him, partly from having known him always, but she did think him a good sort in his own way, though Richard was nearly driven mad by him. And as for Peter Walsh, he had never to this day forgiven her for liking him. She could remember scene after scene at Borden, Peter furious, Hugh not, of course, his match in any way, but still not a positive imbecile, as Peter made out, not a mere barber's block. When his old mother wanted him to give up shooting or to take her to bath, he did it without a word. He was really unselfish, and as for saying, as Peter did, that he had no heart, no brain, nothing but the manners and breeding of an English gentleman, that was only her dear Peter at his worst, and he could be intolerable, he could be impossible, but adorable to walk with on a morning like this. June had drawn out every leaf on the trees, the mothers of Pimlico gave suck to their young. Messages were passing from the fleet to the Admiralty. Arlington Street in Piccadilly seemed to chafe the very air in the park and lift its leaves hotly, brilliantly, on waves of that divine vitality which Clarissa loved, to dance, to ride. She had adored all of that. for they might be parted for hundreds of years, she and Peter. She never wrote a letter, and his were dry sticks, but suddenly it would come over her. If he were with me now, what would he say? Some days, some sights bringing him back to her calmly, without the old bitterness which perhaps was the reward of having cared for people. They came back in the middle of St. James's Park one fine morning. Indeed they did. But Peter, however beautiful the day might be, and the trees and the grass and the little girl in pink, Peter never saw a thing of all that. He would put on his spectacles if she told him to. He would look. It was the state of the world that interested him. Wagner, Pope's poetry, people's characters internally, and the defects of her own soul. How he scolded her. How they argued. She would marry a prime minister and stand at the top of a staircase. The perfect hostess, he called her. She had cried over it in her bedroom. She had the makings of the perfect hostess, he said. So she would still find herself arguing in St. James's Park, still making out that she had been right, and she had, too, not to marry him. For in marriage, a little license, a little independence there must be between people living together day in and day out in the same house which Richard gave her, and she him. 
Where was he this morning, for instance? Some committee, she never asked what. But with Peter, everything had to be shared. Everything gone into. And it was intolerable. And when it came to that scene in the little garden by the fountain, she had to break with him or they would have been destroyed. Both of them ruined, she was convinced. Though she had borne about her for years like an arrow sticking in her heart the grief, the anguish, and then the horror of the moment when someone told her at a concert that he had married a woman met on the boat going to India. Never should she forget all that. Cold, heartless, a prude he called her. Never could she understand how he cared. But those other women did presumably. Silly, pretty, flimsy, nincompoops. And she wasted her pity. For he was quite happy. He assured her, perfectly happy. Though he had never done a thing that they talked of. His whole life had been a failure. It made her angry still. She had reached the park gates. She stood for a moment, looking at the omnibuses in Piccadilly. She would not say of anyone in the world now that they were this or or that. She felt very young, and at the same time, unspeakably aged. She sliced like a knife through everything, at the same time was outside looking on. She had a perpetual sense as she watched the taxi cabs of being out, out, far out to sea and alone. She always had the feeling that it was very, very dangerous to live even one day. Not that she thought herself clever or much out of the ordinary. How she had got through life on the few twigs of knowledge Fraulein Daniels gave them, she could not think. She knew nothing. No language, no history. She scarcely read a book now, except memoirs in bed. And yet to her it was absolutely absorbing, all this. The cabs passing. And she would not say of Peter... She would not say of herself, I am this, I am that. Her only gift was knowing people almost by instinct, she thought, walking on. If you put her in a room with someone, up on her back, like a cat's, or she purred. Devonshire house, bath house, the house with the china cockatoo. She had seen them all lit up once and remembered Sylvia, Fred, Sally, Seaton, such hosts of people, and dancing all night and the wagons plodding past to market and driving home across the park. She remembered once throwing a shilling into the serpentine, but everyone remembered. What she loved was this, here, now, 
in front of her, the fat lady in the cab. Did it matter then, she asked herself, walking towards Bond Street. Did it matter that she inevitably ceased completely? All this must go on without her. Did she resent it? Or did it not become consoling to believe that death ended? Absolutely. But that somehow in the streets of London, on the ebb and flow of things, here, there, she survived. Peter survived. Lived in each other. She being part, she was positive of the trees at home, of the house there, ugly, rambling all to bits and pieces as it was. Part of people she had never met, being laid out like a mist between the people she knew best, who lifted her on their branches as she had seen trees lift the mist. But it spread ever so far, her life, but what was she dreaming as she looked into the hatchard shop window what was she trying to recover what image of white dawn in the country as she read in the book spread open fear no more the heat of the sun nor the furious winter's rages This late age of the world's experience had bred in them all, all men and women, a well of tears. Tears and sorrows, courage and endurance, a perfectly upright and stoical bearing. Think, for example, of the woman she admired most, Lady Bexborough, opening the bazaar. There were jarrocks, jaunts, and jollities, there were Soapy Sponge and Mrs. Asquith's memoirs and big game shooting in Nigeria, all spread open. Ever so many books there were, but none that seemed exactly right to take Evelyn Whitbread in her nursing home. Nothing that would serve to amuse her and make that indescribably dried up little woman look as Clarissa came in just for a moment, cordial. Before they settled down with the usual interminable talk of women's ailments. How much she wanted it. That people should look pleased as she came in. Clarissa thought and turned and walked back toward Bond Street, annoyed because it was silly to have other reasons for doing things. Much rather would she have been one of those people like Richard who did things for themselves, whereas she thought waiting to cross half the time she did things not simply not for themselves, but to make people think this or that. Perfect idiocy she knew. And now the policeman held up his hand, for no one was ever for a second taken in. Oh, if she could have had her life over again, she thought, stepping onto the pavement, 
could have looked even differently. She would have been, in the first place, dark like Lady Bexborough, with a skin of crumpled leather and beautiful eyes. She would have been, like Lady Bexborough, slow and stately, rather large, interested in politics like a man of the country house, very dignified, very sincere. Instead of which she had a narrow, pea-stick figure, a ridiculous little face, beaked like a bird's. That she held herself well was true, and had nice hands and feet, and dressed well, considering that she spent little. But often now this body she wore, she stopped to look at a Dutch picture, this body with all its capacities, seemed nothing, nothing at all. She had the oddest sense of being herself invisible, unseen, unknown, there being no more marrying, no more having of children now, but only this astonishing and rather solemn progress with the rest of them, up Bond Street, this being Mrs. Dalloway, not even Clarissa anymore, this being Mrs. Richard Dalloway. Bond Street fascinated her. Bond Street early in the morning, in the season, its flags flying, its shops, no splash, no glitter, one roll of tweed in the shop where her father had brought his suits for fifty years, a few pearls, Salmon on an ice block. That is all, she said, looking at the fishmongers. That is all, she repeated, pausing for a moment at the window of a glove shop, where before the war you could buy almost perfect gloves. And her old Uncle William used to say a lady is known by her shoes and her gloves. He had turned on his bed one morning, in the middle of the war. He had said, I have had enough. Gloves and shoes. She had had a passion for gloves. But her own daughter, her Elizabeth, cared not a straw for either of them. Not a straw, she thought going up on Bond Street to a shop where they kept flowers for her when she gave a party. Elizabeth really cared for her dog most of all. The whole house this morning smelt of tar. Still, better poor Grizzle than Miss Kilman. Better distemper and tar and all the rest of it than sitting viewed in a stuffy bedroom with a prayer book. Better anything, she was inclined to say. But it might be only a phase, as Richard said, such as all girls go through. It might be falling in love. But why with Miss Kilman? Who had been badly treated, of course, one must make allowances for that. And Richard said she was very able. 
had a really historical mind. Anyhow, they were inseparable. And Elizabeth, her own daughter, went to communion. And how she dressed, how she treated people who came to lunch she did not care about, it being her experience that the religious ecstasy made people callous. So did causes. Dulled their feelings, for Miss Kilman would do anything for the Russians. Starved herself for the Austrians but in private inflicted positive torture. So insensitive was she, dressed in a green Macintosh coat. Year in, year out, she wore that coat. She perspired. She was never in the room five minutes without making you feel her superiority, your inferiority. How poor she was. How rich you were. How she lived in a slum without a cushion or a bed or a rug or whatever it might be. All her soul rusted with that grievance sticking in it. Her dismissal from school during the war. Poor embittered unfortunate creature. For it was not her one hated, but the idea of her which undoubtedly had gathered into itself a great deal that she was not Miss Kilman, had become one of those specters with which one battles in the night, one of those specters who stand astride us and suck up half our lifeblood, dominators and tyrants. For no doubt, with another throw of the dice, had the black been uppermost and not the white, she would have loved Miss Kilman, but not in this world, no. It rasped her, though, to have stirring about in her this brutal monster, to hear twigs cracking and feel hooves planted down in the depths of that leaf-encumbered forest, the soul, never to be content quite or quite secure for at any moment the brew would be stirring. This hatred, which especially since her illness had power to make her feel scraped, hurt in her spine, gave her physical pain and made all pleasure in her beauty, in friendship, in being well, in being loved and making her home delightful rock, quiver and bend as if needed there or a monster grubbing at the roots, as if the whole panoply of content were nothing but self-love. This hatred. Nonsense, nonsense, she cried to herself, pushing through the swinging doors of mulberries to Flores. She advanced, light, tall, very upright, to be greeted at once by button-faced Miss Pym, whose hands were always bright red, as if they had been stood in cold water with the flowers. There were flowers. Delphiniums, sweet peas, bunches of lilac, 
and carnations, masses of carnations. There were roses, there were irises. Ah, yes. So she breathed in the earthy garden's sweet smell as she stood talking to Miss Pam, who owed her out and thought her kind. For kind she had been years ago. Very kind. But she looked older this year, turning her head from side to side among the irises and roses and nodding tufts of lilac with her eyes half closed, snuffing in after the street uproar. The delicious scent, exquisite coolness. And then opening her eyes, how fresh, like frilled linen cleaned from a laundry laid in wicker trays. The roses looked, and dark and prim, the red carnations holding their heads up, and all the sweet peas spreading in their bowls, tinged violet, snow white, pale, as if it were the evening, and girls in muslin frocks came out to pick sweet peas and roses after the superb summer's day with its almost black-blue sky, its delphiniums, its carnations, its arum lilies was over. And it was the moment between six and seven when every flower, roses, carnations, irises, lilac, glows. White, violet, red, deep orange, Every flower seems to burn by itself, softly, purely in the misty beds. And how she loved the gray-white moths spinning in and out over the cherry pie, over the evening primroses. And as she began to go with Miss Pym from jar to jar, choosing nonsense, Nonsense, she said to herself, more and more gently, as if this beauty, this scent, this color, and Miss Pym liking her, trusting her, were a wave which she let flow over her and surmount that hatred, that monster, surmounted all, and it lifted her up, and up, when, oh, a pistol shot in the street outside. Dear, those are motor cars, said Miss Pam, going to the window to look and coming back and smiling apologetically with her hands full of sweet peas as if those motor cars, those tires of motor cars, were all her fault. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.